Hey there, Kevin McCullough. What's the difference between uh, Joe Biden and the White House Christmas tree? Biden only falls when there's stairs involved. It's that Kevin show. Somewhere in the city that defines holiday magic is a man who wants a little eggnog with his mistletoe. And that guy would like to carol you. Featuring the musical stylings of Mel Bunny and the Dreaming Colored Singers. And tonight, the true life story of terror to forgiveness. Author T. Martin Bennett joins us. Also, Keith Getty, an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Noah James, actor in The Chosen. Kristen Getty, J.J. Heller, and Ricky Skaggs in the holiday spotlight. Sketch comedy from John Christ, plus Assignment Desk Weekend. And now, live from Times Square, where our own fully lit and decorated Christmas tree never falls down like a decrepit president, here's that Kevin! Well, thank you, Dave. <laughs> yeah, we've got a big show for you straight ahead. Um, in fact, you want to stick around because an hour two tonight, Assignment Desk Weekend and the sketch comedy of John Christ is just going to be off the hook. And yes, our trees don't fall down. That's that's one of the lessons. Well, let the singers finish out here. Nicely done. Nice done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. We've got a lot to get to. Yeah. So this last week, we had the, you know, the Rockefeller tree lighting per usual, and the mayor was out, and the, the Savannah Guthrie was there, and the Al Roker, and, um, you know, every, everybody was there, and they and they put their hand on the button, and then it, like, you know, sparkled for, like, four seconds, and then finally it all came on, and the, the tree is lit, and now it's lit, and it's up, standing upright at Rockefeller Center. For some reason, we never have a problem in New York City, where we get a lot of wind, a lot of high winds, we never have a problem with keeping our, our tree standing upright. It just doesn't, it's not, it's not an issue for us for some reason. We, we don't seem to have the same issues that some of the others have. All right, so be it. But um, we, do have, we do have some problems tonight, friends. And I, 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 I want to have fun. It's the holiday season. I want to make sure we have lots of fun on the weekend show. Um, and we've got a great lineup for you tonight. Tonight, T. Martin Bennett, author of, author of this book right here, Wounded Tiger. This is an amazing book. Tells the story of true uh, war heroism, terror, because the, the man that, that basically planned the attack on Pearl Harbor uh, eventually uh, comes to a realization that his life is empty and he needs something very different. And th there's some interlocking relationships that are just profound. But T. Martin Bennett, historian author, is going to be with us to tell that story. Uh, we've also got a little bit later on Keith Getty, uh, 
uh, officer of the at most excellent order of the uh, British Empire. I like to I like to bust his chops on that a little bit because um, he 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 got his OBE from Queen Elizabeth herself when she was still uh, living, and um, he's he's strutted around like a peacock ever since. <laughs> I'm kidding. Keith and Kristen are doing the Getty uh, Sing Christmas tour, and it's underway and it's going. It's coming to New York here in a couple of weeks. That's going to be amazing. Uh, but he'll be with us. And then a little bit later on, Noah James of The Chosen. He plays the Andrew, Andrew the Disciple. Uh, he's going to be with us as well because The Chosen, The Gettys, the Trans Siberian Orchestra, um, the Journey to Bethlehem, The Shift. You've got all these things in theaters and in, and in showcases right now that are just here for your holiday enjoyment. It's such a rich time to have, you know, really good enjoyment as an option. So anyway, we'll get into all that. I want to say, as we get into my commentary for tonight, that I, I was struck this week by the death of Henry Kissinger, how quickly the, the vultures began to circle. Um, what, a, what a tremendously important man he was. And I didn't agree with everything that he did. But he certainly, well, without him, the Yom Kippur War would have been lost by Israel. Israel would have been wiped off the map a long time ago. But I, I have to compare his handling of the Yom Kippur War and carrying out President Nixon's strategy and how it protected Israel and we got Israel the, the tools they need. And this joker, Anthony Blinken, that is um, running our State Department now. Because he, he warned Israel... This week, which they started up their their, you know, um, cleansing of Hamas all over again because Hamas evidently had two hundred and forty plus hostages in their in their custody. They've released about a hundred, but they can't find any more to release. So they ran out of hostages to trade. So Israel said, if you don't release more hostages, we're going to go back to uh, cleaning out your operational capacity. And uh, Hamas is like, oh, no, don't do that. We, we, we'll come up with the list. We, we find them. They're around here somewhere. I am very concerned, friend, that the other 140 are dead because Hamas was desperate this week not to have Israel begin uh, hostilities again. They, they were very desperate. They don't, they don't all want to die. And so they're like looking, can we find any more hostages anywhere? And we're finding out like drip, drip, drip now, name after name of hostages that have died in custody of Hamas. And if the if the if the remaining 140 all fit into that category, um, it's over. It's over. They're going to they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth, and they should be. But here's what I don't understand about our Secretary of State. When Henry Kissinger was uh, helping Israel win the Yom Kippur War, which was the war that everyone attacked them from, what, six different countries, all hit them, and Israel had to defend themselves, and they did. And it was it was over pretty quickly. Not to be totally disassociated, this was at the end of the Yom Kippur holiday when the October 7th uh, attack happened, and the, the, they, that's why the, the concert and the parties were going on and so forth. Um, but Anthony Blinken, look at this headline, don't restart the war without a civilian protection plan. You know what, Anthony Blinken, 
The Civilian Protection Plan was in place on October the 7th. There was a ceasefire in existence on October the 7th. That ceasefire had been in existence for quite a while because the last time that Hamas decided to act badly, Israel decided to try to take care of itself, and that was when that ceasefire came into existence. I'm tired of the know-nothings that don't know anything about history, the people that are out there saying that, you know, Israel is the aggressor here, there was a ceasefire underway. 1,400 dead Israelis and 240 hostages later, that ceasefire was significantly broken because of the actions of the evil terrorists, not because of the law-abiding state of Israel. So what is our State Department telling Israel, well, you have to have a civilian protection plan in place. We know that they're going to hide behind civilians. We're very sorry about that, but we didn't start this. And it's Israel's responsibility, it's the Israelis' government responsibility to make sure that terrorists can't come into their country and kill people again. And by the way, they didn't just kill Jews, they killed Christians, they killed some fellow Arabs. They, they would kill Palestinians and Arabs that are living in Israel if it, if it turned out that they needed to, because they don't care. That's the point of all of this. The terrorists want to kill everybody. Yes, they want to get rid of the Jews. Yes, they want to wipe Israel off the map. Yes, that is some of their ultimate goal. But if they have to kill a few Arabs and a few Palestinians and a few Muslims and a few other people in the process of it, they're not going to worry about that. So... I mean, Hamas's days are numbered, but the fact that they couldn't come up with any more of the 140-plus hostages that are still missing, they ran out of hostages, I hope that that's not as foreboding as it appears to me, because that does not look good for the families of those 140, many of whom have probably assumed that they're not going to make it anyway. It's a, it's, a, it's a hot mess. Kevin McCullough, very glad to have you with us. Stay with us. T. Martin Bennett joins me next. is someone that uh, has spent the last 18 years pouring his life into his seminal work. Uh, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of kindness in a day of hatred, uh, one for another. And in the times that we live in, what better message could really be told uh, as you look at the uh, wars that are breaking out on your TV screens almost nightly. Uh, his name is Martin Bennett, and he's the author of the new book, Wounded Tiger. Please welcome Martin Bennett. Hey, 
Hey, Martin, good to have you. Yeah, Kevin, thanks very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, my viewers and listeners know that I'm an infinite, like, I don't think I'll ever be satiated World War II buff. I just think there's too much to learn. This story touches on one of the most iconic aspects, at least from the American side of the story, and that was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Tell me about the relationship of your two primary characters here. Uh, it's a story that takes place in the context of war, but it's a character-driven story. The main character, of course, is Mitsuo Fuchida, who is the man who led the attack in Pearl Harbor. He was handpicked by Admiral Yamamoto, and he was driven by selfish ambition and ambition for his nation. He wanted them to be a conqueror like he'd seen other nations do around the world throughout history, and that was what he hoped for. Uh, the second key character in the story of Wounded Tiger is a man named Jacob DeShazer, or Jake. He volunteered for the U.S. Army Air Corps. And once the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he was livid, like every red-blooded American, and he wanted to go, quote, kill Japs, end quote. And he volunteered for a mission for which he knew nothing about, the Doolittle Raid, ending up bombing Japan, then flying to China, and hopefully to, to allies in China. But his plane ran out of fuel over occupied China. He bailed out in the middle of the night in the rain, and he was captured by the Japanese. He was in solitary confinement, tortured, and um, his buddies were, you know, mistreated. Some died, some, one was, some were shot. Uh, and he was just living in a hopeless situation. In his own words, he said he was crazy with hatred. And he came to, a, 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 I guess, a realization. He didn't want to live in hatred and die in hatred. And that, that's, that's part of his story. And then there's the Covell family. These are teachers who are highly educated, who volunteered to go to Japan. They went there to bring the gospel of Christ but they also helped the poorest of the poor. They really genuinely loved the people of Japan. They, they brought their kids into the world in Japan, and they spoke Japanese fluently. But when the Japanese ramped up for war, they fled to the Philippines, and then they sent their kids back to the U.S. So these three plot lines had really nothing to do with each other, and eventually they come together, and that is the story of Wounded Tiger. But in the world, like you said, you know, we have conflict wars. There's a lot of killing and death and hopelessness. But Wounded Tiger is really unusual because it's a true story and it's about life and hope that comes out of the midst of this terrible struggle and how Fuchita's life changed from hating America to loving America and how he had a change of heart, mind, and spirit through these people. And especially through this girl, Peggy Covell, who was a college girl in upstate New York and how she impacted his life 5,000 miles away. And the circumstances were like millions to one that anything like this would ever happen. That's fascinating to see that unfold. We, we live in a day in which um, visceral hatred for people is allowed to just march through our streets. The anti-Semitic protests of recent weeks has really uh, spoken to this. How strong was the hatred between the Japanese and the American uh, fighting men and women uh, at, at this point in history? Was it anything parallel to what we're seeing? Right uh, Kevin, that's a fantastic question. And I really, when I started researching the story, that's one of the things I came across that was kind of surprising. So in, uh, in 1919, after World War One, they formed the League of Nations, and mm -hmm. Japan was one of those countries that was in, uh, was a member of that that group. And it was a precursor to the United Nations, and they were trying to figure out a way to prevent wars by negotiation ahead of time. So during this conference in Versailles on the League of Nations, the Japanese contingencies said, "Hey." They put forward what's called the racial equality proposal, saying, hey, all races are equal. We need to establish that as part of the League of Nations. And several of the countries said, well, actually, that's not true. There's superior races and inferior races, and you guys are part of the inferior races. 
Well, this infuriated the Japanese, and Woodrow Wilson was the president of the League of Nations. He was the leader of that, and he said, well, unless this is unanimous, we're not going to accept this, which was kind of odd. It should have gone by majority. Well, the Japanese left that really angry, and in Japan proper, there were riots in the street. There was proclamations that, that, we, that they would declare war against the United States. This is back in 1919. Hmm. So shortly after that, Kuchida was, a, a train, was being trained in the Imperial Japanese Navy Academy in Etajima, and they had a training mission that sent him on a ship to San Francisco. This was 1922. And he, he uh, encountered some Japanese nationals in America, in California. And I grew up in California. I never knew this history. And they were saying, why do the Americans treat us like that? They discriminate against us. They put it in newspapers. Watch out for the yellow peril. The unions were against them. Uh, they couldn't testify in court. And they just felt they were being mistreated simply because they were Asians and foreigners. And this, again, just added fuel to the fire of all oh, these dirty, rotten Americans. They're going to get it one day. So uh, all these things just came together for them. They felt marginalized by the nations of the world, that is by the United Kingdom and the Germans and the French, because they weren't allowed to build up their military in the same way other nations were, and they felt they were being marginalized and disrespected. So it's kind of like the little guy in the bar who gets insulted because he's a little guy, and then he comes back with his machine gun to even up the score. And that's kind of what happened in Pearl Harbor and the Pacific War. Well, and, and as we think about it, you know, following World War II and the end of, of the war in the Pacific was a deadly toll, the dropping of the nuclear bomb and uh, the death toll that just those two hits uh, alone took. It forced Japan to surrender. Um, but Japan and the U.S. are at a very different place now. Um, and I'm wondering if the seeds for that renewal and kind of partnership that we enjoy with them now you could also trace to the lives that uh, were tracked in your book. Well, it, it's, it was very interesting for me to understand Japanese philosophy and how they, how they, Japanese culture. So they had a mindset that, and it was inculcated from a very young age that you respect your parents and you obey the emperor, that he was a godlike figure, not in the sense of the way Westerners see a god as being all-powerful and all-knowing, but rather being descended from the gods. And that was just everywhere that you, whatever the emperor said, you're going to do that. Well, once the war was over and he publicly declared, I'm not, I'm not God, I'm not a God, they said, okay, we're done with that. And they moved on. And it was very unusual for me when, when I saw that when the Japanese surrendered, uh, there's a, this is not in the book, but I remember reading about the Japanese pilots that developed these airplanes that ran on high-octane fuel, and the American pilots were talking. It was just they're talking shop, like like guys talk about hot rods. They said, "Hey, can you fly one of our planes and put some of the high octane fuel in it? Because we want to see how it's going to run." They said, "Sure." They put the had put these green crosses on the wings so they wouldn't get shot down. I knew it wasn't a, a war plane. And they're out there flying the plane, and they're all laughing and talking. And I thought, how did this happen right after the war? They're all hating each other, and the Americans were kind of surprised. And uh, I remember I met a woman who was in Japan during the war, and she said she hated Americans because she thought they were going to kill everybody until she saw the Americans in Japan giving candy to kids. And after that, she said, well, I want to go to America. So I think the uh, once the Japanese saw that the Americans were not hateful toward them, they just wanted the war to end, and they saw the character of Americans, and Americans saw that, hey, Japanese are people. Um, the war thing just kind of went away, and, and now we're really best friends as nations. Yeah, there's no doubt. They're one of our strongest allies. It reads like a movie. You, you, you want to make sure you have this uh, in your uh, reading uh, stack for this fall. Kevin McCullough coming right back from Times Square. Don't go away. 
McCullough, glad to have you with us at That Kevin Show. Everything related to That Kevin Show, funnily enough, found at thatkevinshow.com. This is the best we could come up with, thatkevinshow.com, including if you would like to go with me uh, on a World War II uh, tour next year. Martin, let me ask you, uh, there were obviously some relational things that happened when this pilot who was filled with this hate and this American who was filled with this hate uh, began to let their guard down. How, how how did that come about? And are there principles there that we can apply to current day conflicts and maybe bring about a better day for us? Yeah, the world is full of, of, of fighting and wars that's been uh, part of human history for thousands of years, and I'm sure will be for the future of this planet. But not too many people are talking about what the real solution is. So uh, Fuchida was involved in war at the highest levels in his day, and uh, Jake DeShazer was right in the forefront. He was, I mean, the, presidents of, the president of the United States and the emperor of Japan knew about Jake DeShazer and the Doolittle Raid. But uh, war doesn't really lead to peace. You know, it's not bigger weapons. It's, and, and Fuchida said that since war really begins in the heart, then peace has to begin in the heart. So I think the first res- uh, recognition that leads to peace is to understand where does this all come from? When I was researching this story, uh, for Wounded Tiger, and I came to the scene where Douglas MacArthur is giving a speech. He was the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, and this is probably the most recognized speech he would ever give in his life, and he prepared for it. I didn't really know what it said. I'd never seen it before. And as I was reading his speech, which is summarized in the book, or as excerpts are in the book of Wounded Tiger, he says, we've come to our last chance. If we don't learn how to achieve peace, Armageddon is at the door. We're essentially going to destroy ourselves. He said the, the problem is spiritual, and therefore it needs a spiritual solution. I thought, I cannot believe I'm reading this, but I thought, you know, I think he's exactly right. And that's the conclusion that Puchita came to. And Jake DeShazer, when he's in prison, completely in a hopeless situation, friends dying of exposure, being tortured to death, etc., it was just a nightmare, a living nightmare for him. And he thought, I do not want to die in this prison filled with hatred, and that's the end of my life. I don't want to live that way. And he remembered his mom. And moms are very influential in people's lives. They don't, mothers don't recognize how powerful they are. Mm-hmm. So he thought, I want to be like my mom. So he started seeking and asking questions, and he knew that she was a godly woman. So he ended up getting a copy of the Bible and reading it, and he applied it to himself, but he was extremely skeptical. And that's the cool thing about his story. He wasn't just like, oh, yeah, get gung-ho, let's do it. It's like, no, no, how does this work? Does God talk to people? I don't believe this. How could this happen? But he asked all the right questions, and, you know, you, you'll see in the story, things started to happen in his life. Some there seemed to be natural. Other things clearly supernatural. How in the world could this happen? So the pathway to peace is there for everybody, but the pathway uh, for most people is not quite as difficult as it was for the people in this story who had death all around them. So I, I, I want this to be a story of hope and inspiration for all people that uh, even if you don't believe in the supernatural realm, God is still for you, and he has a pathway that really will lead to happiness for you. Well, that's so well said on so many levels, and I would love for 
the concept of the spiritual to take hold in the modern conflicts. Um, you know, Russia and Ukraine and Hamas and Israel, uh, I, I am concerned that it's the tip of something much bigger that the world will find itself in in the days to come. I pray that that's not the case. Uh, but as an observer of history, you know, we tend to redo things that we don't learn the lessons of. And so I'm I'm hopeful that um, that we can avoid those. But uh, to hear how important um, God's input was on the reform of both men and their hearts uh, is really uh, is really encouraging. Wounded Tiger is the name of the book. Uh, Martin Bennett is, is its author. And um, we only have about 20 seconds, Martin. But tell me about the girl. What, what Why is the girl so important in the in the story? Well, she was faced with a horrible situation uh, where anybody naturally would just be full of despondency and despair. And what she did is she thought, how can I love my enemies? And she volunteered to serve the Japanese in the United States. Uh, through a set of circumstances, she wound up in a hospital at POWs where she was actually tending to the engineer of Mitsuo Fuchida. And in such a loving way, he said, why are you so kind and so good to us? And she explained about uh, how terrible the Japanese had been to Americans and she wanted to express love to them. And they thought, why would you love your enemies? Well, this got back to Fuchida 5,000 miles away and it transformed him because it changed his pathway of thinking. I've always been taught we're going to kill and hate our enemies. Why would you love your enemies and how do you do that? His finding that answer is the answer everyone needs to have today. Yeah, no doubt. Wounded Tiger, the name of the book. Martin Bennett, congratulations. It is a big volume, friends, but he says if you're not convinced by page 10, uh, you'll never be. It's, it's a page turner. You want to check it out. Martin Bennett, thank you for being with us. Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Kevin McCullough coming right back. It's That Kevin Show. Don't go away. can't put me in a bad mood if we've got Christmas, uh, the sounds of Christmas going on. And again, a big thanks to Mel Tunney and the Dream in Color singers for the holiday renditions of the uh, That Kevin Show theme. We've got a lot to uh, enjoy this Christmas, and I'm so thankful to be able to spend some of it with you. Uh, I also want to say thank you to those of you that gave last week to our CSI ongoing initiative, the uh, attempt to end slavery in our lifetime uh, because we are liberating slaves that are actually enslaved uh, in northern Sudan uh, these days. And because of your generosity, uh, there are a number more that have been freed this week. And as you can see on the screen, we are getting closer and closer and closer to hitting that goal of 192 slaves freed. And I, I want to I make sure that all 192 are liberated by Christmas. These are primarily Christian women that were taken captive, many of them when they were just young girls. And so it's been 12, 15 years in captivity. Uh, and to be able to give them back for their Christian Christmas holiday, their freedom, their life, and a brand new beginning is just one of the most incredible things that I think uh, could be done. And it's one of the reasons why I've been so thankful that so many of you have for the last uh, number of years joined with us in these endeavors because we've liberated 
uh, all in close to 4,100 women in the last uh, 10 years or so uh, with uh, the gifts that you've given and the uh, advocation that we've done and my family getting involved. Somebody asked us, Going into Giving Tuesday last week, you know, hey, how many how many slaves, uh, you know, are there left in Sudan? And I said, well, at the peak, there were about 185,000 women that had been taken into slavery. Because of the efforts of CSI and people just like you, we believe that number to be now closer to 35,000, which means more than 150,000 slaves have received their liberty and are uh, living brand new lives in ways that they could not have expected when they were in captivity. I've told you the story of some of these uh, women. They they are marched off. You know, the, the, the way that their lives are upended is almost identical to what happened to uh, the people that were living in southern Israel on October 7th. Uh, the Arab forces came in, uh, ransacked the villages, burned things to the ground, shot the men, uh, killed those who resisted, and for little women and children that uh, that they could take and that would not uh, create a, a problem, they they just marched off into slavery into the north. And this was a subjugation of the Christian women in the south to the Arab masters in the north. And this is this is done on purpose. It's a it's a tool of warfare. It's a key manipulation is a key in terms of having power and so forth. And so this is this is what was done. Uh, to these innocent women, and many of them um, forced to change their Christian name to a Muslim name, forced to um, be sexually subservient to not only the master, but sometimes his son, sometimes his friends, sometimes given out his favors to people that he was trying to ingratiate himself to. Talk about a completely demoralizing and utterly helpless and just kind of, you know, you, you, I think you would become numb after a while living in this type of existence. But that's just part of the abuse. They they were verbally abused by oftentimes the, the slave master's wife because if the slave master wanted to sleep with the slave instead of the wife, she took that personally. And so she held that against the slave. Uh, there is a word that they have uh, in Sudan that we are not, we don't have an English translated equivalent of that is so dehumanizing, so profane and so vulgar. We we can't even tell you what it means in English because it's it's that that and that, and that's what they're called from sunup to sundown. Um they're not allowed to find people from from where they're from. They're not allowed to talk to people outside the home. Uh, they're not allowed to eat much of anything other than what's uh, left over for them by way of the scraps of the master's table. And when one of these women is liberated, and is brought back home to South Sudan. The first thing they say is, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." I'm I'm so indebted to the people that have done this, that have been that have shown us this kindness. But the second thing they say, almost as quickly, is, "Don't stop until we get all of them out." And so, with thirty-five thousand or so to go, we've, we're doing what we can. We found one hundred and ninety-two of them specifically this year that we know we can free. 
We know their name. We know where they're at. Uh, the negotiations for some of them have already been secured, uh, and some of them are back in freedom already. Earlier from this year, there there have been a couple of liberations that have already occurred, but the the remainder, the, the just few that we have left before. Uh, we hit that 192 number. Uh, I, I don't want to leave a single one of them behind. I want every single one of them liberated this Christmas. Now, your gift of $250 um, affects not only you know, them coming to freedom, but it really lays the foundation for what their new life is because the $250 basically supplies the bag of hope, which is everything they need to start their life over again. It's a year's worth of food. It's a year's worth of seed grain that they can plant new crops for. It's utensils to cook and uh, prepare and sow and fish and do all kinds of things with. It's um, uh, ne uh, netting and um, bedding and things that they need to protect themselves from the weather and to and to stay warm. Uh, there are things included in there like a Bible. There are things included in there that uh, that they need. You know, medical needs. Uh, women need feminine products. There's there's those types of things that are also included. And then the the kind of the piece de resistance is that every single one of these women will receive a kid goat. Um, a she-goat that will be of uh, goat-bearing capabilities. And when they have uh, additional goats, when they are able to make the milk and cheese that the goat will give them, uh, then they are going to be able to help provide for themselves going forward on, a, on an ongoing basis. So you're not only liberating them, you're not only giving them the key to restarting their life all over again, you're helping them live their life for years to come because they will have this kind of micro-enterprise ability of being able to take care of themselves, which is really exciting. Here's the number, 888-342-1010. We need 10 more people to go to the phone and say, uh, yeah, I'll liberate one uh, one slave. It's $250 one time. You can do it. You can break it up over five months at $50 a month. You can do $125 a month for two months, whatever you need to do. But would you help us get past this 192 number? Those are the names that we had on the list at the start of the year. I don't leave. I don't want to leave a single one of them out. Please, please, please be generous. 888-342-1010-888-342-1010-888-342-1010 or bringherhome.org. All right, coming up next hour, Keith Getty joins us to talk about the Getty Christmas tour that is underway. Here's how they begin the second half of this year's Christmas celebration. Kristen Getty and J.J. Heller. Yet born of Mary 
It's true.